Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and join me in 1 Peter chapter 5 as we continue our study of God's Word together this morning. My prayer uh, is this morning that we understand the richness of this text as we expand our thinking on what God has to say about church leadership. And we do have a, a bit of ground to cover this morning, and we're not only going to try to unpack some of the treasure that's here in this text, but we're going to try to connect this text with other passages to help fill out our thinking of what God has for the leaders of his church and how leaders benefit the church and bring blessing to his people. This morning, uh, I'd like to show us how Peter provides insightful guidance for effective church leadership. And here's the bottom line. If you take anything away from this morning, here it is. Leaders need to be humble, compassionate, and servant-hearted. You see, God has structured the church in a very specific way, and he did it for your benefit. He did it for my benefit. And as persecution grows, we need to recognize the value and the calling of elders within the church. Now, obviously, I'm preaching this morning as an elder, but really a careful study of this passage demolishes any self-importance or any self-reliance that I may have had before I studied this text. And just remember, as you think about the context of 1 Peter, he's writing to a church that's enduring massive persecution at the time. Right, just last week in chapter 4, verse 12, he told the church not to be surprised at the fiery trials that is about to come. And we know from, uh, from our study of 1 Peter that his whole point, Peter's whole point of this book is to stand firm. That's what he's going to tell the church in chapter 5. And so he exhorts the church in two ways, to stand firm, to endure, to stand firm in the faith. Be faithful even when it's hard. And the church is to rest in him, fix your hope upon him, resolve to be faithful for him. Peter also invites God's people and exhorts them to be noticed for the right things. When persecution comes, you ought to be noticed for doing the right thing. That means you stand out. You stand out as a royal priesthood, a people called for his own purposes. And this means that the church then are the people who connect uh, a God to the people and the people to God. We are to live and behave focused upon holiness, right? That means doing the right thing even when the right thing is difficult and hard. In chapter 4, Peter tells them again that fiery trials are about to come. And since Christ is no longer walking upon this earth in physical form, Peter writes this. He's, he's telling the elders of every church throughout the world, they are called to recognize the immense responsibility of leading the church in the footsteps of Christ. And so let's read our passage together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Follow along as I read. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God who are among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter here in our passage, he's going to be wrapping up his letter with a very personal, very heavy, very sharp plea to the church leadership to lead by example. And in the context here, I don't think Peter can, can end his letter by placing the bulk of the burden upon the, on the, on the congregation as they're going to be enduring sufferings. That It's not the responsibility of just the congregation. He wants to make sure that he's going to end his letter by calling the men who have accepted the responsibility and duty of caring for God's sheep to a higher and greater level of accountability. If there's ever a time that leadership was needed, it is now. You know, across churches across America have men in their churches who have abandoned their post. Pastors have become entertainers or motivational speakers. Men have become more concerned with how they're perceived than what God has called them to. You have churches that have historically been orthodox in their teaching and their confession, now drifting in their practice away from Scripture. And Peter this morning, he lays out exactly what a pastor elder ought to be and how they ought to act. And so we're going to see this morning, if you look at your notes, we'll see number one, Peter's charge. Two, his, the expectation of care. Three, the shepherd's reward. And finally, number four, the church's call to humility. And before we get to all those four points, we need to lay out some introductory groundwork that we need to be thinking through, and that comes in verse 1. So let's start there in verse 1 with Peter's credentials. And really, it's somewhat of a parenthetical thought before our first point, and that's his exhortation. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, okay, <laughs> we've got to stop there. Right? As good Bible study students, we know that when the therefore is there, there, we have to ask, what's it there for? Right? He's linking two thoughts together. He's linking chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, to what he's about to say. And he's telling, in, in that passage, in chapter 4, he's telling the sheep that there's going to be a time of judgment, specifically in verse 17. And it's, that judgment's going to start with the household of God. Judgment is coming. And it's going to start with the church. But this judgment, it's not a judgment of condemnation because that's reserved for unbelievers, but this is a judgment of purification. Have you ever thought about how God purifies the church? Well, he does it through suffering. He, he does it through suffering. He purifies the church through suffering. And that's been the whole point of this book. And so Peter's point is in order, to, in order to be standing at the end of this purification process, the believer must entrust his soul to God to do what is right, while the rest of the world continues to hate them. And since that's true, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 says, I exhort the elders. Okay, Peter is now shifting his focus from the congregation on to the pastors. And why does he do that? See, if judgment is coming to the church, where do you think the judgment's going to come first? The office of elder. 
elders have been around right, a long time throughout history. And the idea is that they are going to be held at a higher standard. And, and that, that idea of them being at a higher standard is not a new concept in Scripture. Right? In, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, you, you see the prophet. He sees that there's been sin allowed to go unchecked in the city. There's abominations, it says, all across the city. And there are some within the city who don't approve of this sin, who have not been stained by their abomination. And, and, and now God is coming and telling Ezekiel, he is going to judge the city. And so God sends executioners in Ezekiel chapter 9. And he tells them to spare the ones who've, who haven't been stained by this wickedness. But he tells the executioners, start with the elders. The elders were to be killed first because of their authorization and participation in wickedness. See, it wasn't the people who were struck down first. It was the elders. It wasn't the sheep. It was the shepherds. And now in our passage, Peter's talking directly to the elder. And in the New Testament, the elder is, is a, a spiritual leader. And how and how Peter addresses these leaders, it really can, inf- it can help us as we, even though you're not, you might not be an elder, it can help us in leading and influencing and impacting people. Right? Whether you're an elder or not, or a Bible study a leader, or a father, or a mother in the home, a person of influence, there's, there's lessons to be learned from this passage on how to lead. And so you look at the text. Look at chap- uh, chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you. Right, at this point in the first century church, there are many churches that have been, been planted, planted and continuing to be planted. And there were elders that were spread all across Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, and uh, Israel, and beyond. But Peter is saying, I'm, I'm talking to a specific group. I'm talking to the senior leadership of the body of Christ in your local church. Right, in the New Testament... There are two leadership groups within the church. The way that God has organized the church, there's two offices of leadership. You have elders and you have deacons. Elders are the servant leaders and shepherds, where the deacons are ministers of mercy. See, deacon means servant. And those deacons, they're the ones who have wisdom as they exercise and lead ministries to administer mercy on behalf of Christ's church. Elder, on the other hand, is the title of the senior office of leadership within the church. And it's synonymous with two other terms that we see in scripture. You see overseer and you have the pastor or shepherd. Right? Interestingly enough, all three uh, terms are used in our passage this, this morning. You see that the pastors, uh, Peter's, Peter's exhorting the pastors, the elders, to shepherd and to o- exercise oversight within the church. And these words are all used interchangeably in scripture to talk about the same office, the same office of elder. Elder could mean that, you know, that's an older guy with white hair, but it doesn't have to be. It just means that they're old enough and they're mature enough to lead. And the level of life experience and the spiritual maturity is obvious. In Titus and Timothy, Paul clearly lays out the qualifications for elder uh, in scripture. See, these men, of, the, the men who are elders, they are to be above reproach and to be spiritually minded. You know, and, and we're embarking on a beautiful time that we're going to have a senior pastor. And Church of the Canyons has been able to function because we have pastors. 
We've had pastors and overseers and elders these last few years. See, our elders have been pastoring us since, the, since they became elders. It's synonymous. And how lovely it is that God has provided shepherds through a pastor search, through pastor retirement, and through a global pandemic. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing because Christ cares for his flock. And so does Peter. And so let's look at the text again. He writes, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Just a few observations here. All right, Peter here, he's, he's shepherding the Asian elders at the same exact way that he's exhorting them to lead their church. Right? Peter doesn't command them. He's not insisting. He's not lording his position higher than anybody else is. He's not browbeating these elders. He's not humiliating these elders. He's not trying to intimidate them. Rather, he's practicing what he's preaching. He calls them to his side. He entreats them. He pleads with them. He, he appeals to them with this threefold uh, credential list. Right? He's a fellow elder. He's a witness of Christ's sufferings. And he's a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And so what do these mean? What, what's the implications of these three credentials? Right? If anyone could have used his authority to get what he wanted, it's Peter, right? Just think about who Peter was. He was the one who vocalized and verbalized that Jesus was the Christ, right? He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the one who got called down and he walked on water. He was the one who was the leader of the disciples. He's the one that Jesus told to tend my lambs. Three times, tend my sheep, tend my lambs. And so Peter could have appealed to his authority, but no. He is humble, and he calls himself fellow elder. He's on the same level as these other elders. And that's going to go for Pastor Chris. When he comes here, he'll tell you this himself. He's not on some higher level. He hasn't reached some superior level of spirituality. The only difference between Chip or Fred or Dwayne or Chris or Bill or me is that he's going to be making eldering his full-time job. And you're allowing him to do that. And that's for your benefit. See, Peter here, he's identifying the elders of Asia Minor. He's, he's walking in their shoes. He, he has the same struggles and temptations as them. So when Peter speaks to these elders as a fellow elder, he's clearly trying to motivate his church leadership to continue in the witness and testimony of those who saw Christ in his work. That word witness you see in verse 1, it means martyr. He and the elders were fellow martyrs, witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. Remember, just a few verses above this, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter's saying, I not only saw the sufferings of Christ, I've participated in the sufferings of Christ. I'm a witness because of what I saw, but I'm also a witness because of what I experienced. Peter was in prison, right? He was flogged. Peter was threatened. And tradition holds that he was crucified upside down. He knew the cost of holy living was high. Peter's saying, I'm an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And not only have I seen it, but I'm exhorting you because I've lived it. 
I've tasted it. And that's the credibility and sympathy of, of shared experience. See, I've lived this. I've understood this. I know what it costs. And Peter's asking the elder elders to join in. So I'm appealing to you. I'm exhorting you. I know it can be hard. I, it was hard for him, and I know it'll be hard for you. Peter says, I'm an eyewitness, and this gives me credibility of sharing this role of elder with you. And that burden that they shared and the hope of glory, that's the incentive that was going to encourage those men in that church to press on when suffering came their way. As you know, uh, Chip is our newest elder here at Church of the Canyons. Today, this morning, marks his 56th day as an elder. But don't let the brevity fool you. See, one commentator puts it this way. When a man enters eldership, no small honor is conferred upon him, for he is taking the oldest religious office in the world, whose history can be traced through Christianity and Judaism for 4,000 years, and no small responsibility falls upon him, for he has been ordained as a shepherd of the flock of God and a defender of the faith. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you've been an elder a long time or a short time. The office and requirements are the same. God is so kind to supply his church with godly elders. And so in verse 1, Peter gives us, again, his credentials for what he's about to say next. And here we come to the meat of our passage together. We'll start with our outline this morning. Number one in your notes, Paul's exhortation. Paul's exhortation, it comes in verse 2. It says, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the exhortation, right? Immediately after Peter's, Peter guides the elder's hearts by giving him his credentials, the exhortation comes, shepherd the flock of God among you. And it's a simple exhortation, shepherd the flock, but it has major, major implications. And we know, of course, this is a metaphor, right? Or an image to help us understand maybe one or an aspect of the church's relationship with God. Much like the vine and the branches highlight the source of life that's linked with abiding in Christ himself, the shepherd and flock image highlights the ownership of God and his church. And so what does this shepherd even do with his sheep? Well, the shepherd's responsible for feeding, for protecting, and leading. Commentator E.B. Cranfield puts it this way. He says, The chief functions of the shepherd, as they are depicted in the Bible, are to seek out the lost, gather the scattered, watch over and defend against wild beasts and robbers, and then to feed, water, and lead. So let's connect the dots this morning. Peter, he's telling the elders that Christians are like sheep, and they need someone to feed and to guide and to protect and to care for them. And so it's the elders' responsibility to make the welfare of their flock the aim of their life. They're the ones to encourage, to comfort, to guide, to correct, and to pray for the sheep. Shepherds, they're intimate, they're passionate, they're humble, they're relational, they're, they're credible, sympathetic, they're hopeful. And so what if we didn't have a shepherd? What if there were no shepherds for this flock of God? 
Well, Jesus, he, he gives a great commentary of what life would be like if there was no shepherd. And he says that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. This is where Jesus, Jesus he's walking with the crowds. And the passage says, Jesus, seeing the multitudes, felt compassion for them because they were distressed. This distress it has the idea of being harassed or abused. It's not like a distress like, oh man, I didn't get that parking spot or my phone charger died or something like that. We're talking deep distress. This is abusive distress. It's hurt. It's harm. Damaged or abused. And so Jesus, he's seeing the multitudes. He felt compassion in his heart for them because they were distressed. And it says that they were downcast. Downcast, has, it, just, it means this, it's flung down like an animal that's been, that's been thrown down and a predator is about to devour them. That's what Jesus saw. People distressed, downcast. People were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so here's why shepherds are valuable. Because sheep are vulnerable without a shepherd. Without shepherds, sheep enjoy no protection, no guidance, no provision. Life without a good and faithful shepherd is a life of fear, frustration, dissatisfaction, and tragic destruction. And of course, this takes place in the context of a local church. Right? I, for instance, do not tend to the sheep of Placerita Bible Church or Crossroads or Grace Baptist. Right? The, the text says, shepherd the flock of God among you. And it's the same idea that you'll see down in verse 3, uh, the same idea of those allotted to your charge or in your care, right? This Church of the Canyons is God's flock. There have been a there's been a divine appointment of these particular sheep in this particular fold. That is why the content of what is coming next in the verses ahead is so vital to understand because the elders have been given a holy commission, Peter tells the elders, these are the people that God himself has given to you. You did not earn them. You did not seek them for yourself. You did not die for them. They are God's. And God is the one who allotted them to your charge. You see, Jesus, he is the great shepherd. And he first commissioned Peter to tend his lambs as an under-shepherd. And now Peter turns around to his fellow elders and commissions them with their task as being fellow under-shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God. That's number one, the exhortation. And so if that's what elders are supposed to do, how should they do it? Here we go, number two in your notes. Here's the expectation of care. What should shepherding look like? What does Christ, the chief shepherd, expect from his elders? Peter gives us three contrasts in the following verses. Three negatives and then with all the alternatives. Three B's and three not to B's. Let's read verse two and three. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Let's look at each one of these. First, elders are to be exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. This is how they ought to shepherd. That word willingly means free will. Another way you could say it is spontaneously. 
You know, elders should not be elders if they're forced into it or feel some sort of external compulsion. You know, have you ever given money under compulsion? You're like, what do you mean you don't want to round up to the, your, your purchase to the nearest hundred dollar, you know, to make a donation for, I don't know, whatever, rabies awareness race. <laughs> I don't know. They always make you feel bad for not doing it. But a shepherd cannot feel like he must shepherd the flock, but that he wants to shepherd the flock. It's an office that must be aspired to, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3. Do you know what the first question that we ask as a board of elders when we're evaluating men, when you nominate them around March, April? You know, we, we sit in, a, in, the, in the board meeting and we say, okay, so-and-so, he's a stand-up guy, but does he aspire to the office? If it's a no, then we pass. He could, he could meet every other qualification of an elder, but if he does not aspire to the office, we say no. And it's obvious why, right? If you had a reluctant or an unwilling shepherd to care for God's people, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Because he doesn't possess the God-given motivation to shepherd the flock. See, if an elder serves because his wife or his friends pressure him, it'll start feeling like he got drafted for war instead of volunteering. If we look at the text, God wants a willing spirit according to the will of God. Glad, voluntary service is God's standard. See, God is not reluctant. He's not a heel-dragging, unwilling shepherd, but he cares for his sheep willingly and freely and graciously. And in the same way that God loves a cheerful giver, God loves cheerfully willing elders. The next contrast that we see in verse 2 has to do with money. Look at verse 2. How should you shepherd? Well, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This idea of compensation in the church leadership was around from the inception of the church, and that's why Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 6, and that we should give double honor to those who teach and preach, and payment is a part of that double honor. But the abuse of, of, and of that privilege by men who are elders who received compensation was on the rise, and the apostles had to address it. You see, the love of gain and the love of power are the two most insidious, treacherous, ugly temptations that can creep into the life of an elder. Covetousness and ambition tend to rule the human heart. That is why the free, being free from the love of money is an elder qualification. Right? An elder must be purely motivated for the good of the sheep and the glory of God, not for personal gain and not to pad their 401k. This type of sordid gain is morally disgusting because it's greedy and dishonest. See, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking of ways to illustrate it, and the low-hanging fruit is just to you know, flip on any uh, Christian uh, TV show and see these megachurch pastors flying on their... Uh, private jets and you know, flaunting their prosperity gospel. And, and it's obvious to us that that is wrong. But it can happen down the street. It can happen here. Just Google pastor and embezzlement and you'll see story after story after story about pastors abusing their office. It cannot be tolerated since that means they are prioritizing wealth and reward 
not the joy of serving. And so if elders are not to do it for greedy gain, how, sh- how then should they shepherd? Well, elders must lead passionately. Look at the text. Not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Eagerness. That means with passion. Elders lead passionately with the desire to help. Listen, here's the attitude of a shepherd that's honorable before God. It's a shepherd that says, if I can, I will. And if I can't, just know that I really wanted to. Right? That, that word eagerness implies, I mean, being ready or being zealous or doing things enthusiastically. You know, I don't know if you, you know a lot of young boys these days, but you get them to start talking about Pokemon cards or yo-yos or video games, you'll start to see some passion. You know, a kid who normally can't concentrate long enough to clean his room is now eager to have an hour and a half conversation about which sword is best on that video game. He is zealous for the cause of defeating that bad guy. Look, elders are to be zealous for the flock. Elders ought to be enthusiastic about shepherding, willing to help wherever is needed. Just a reminder here, we're we're looking again at the level of care that God requires of an elder, which now will bring us to our third contrast that Peter says. Read verse 3 again. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter here, he places a prohibition on lording it over people. And we need to understand what lording it means. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and as you're, as you're flipping there, this is the portion where James and John, right, the sons of thunder, their mom comes to Jesus, Mrs. Sons of Thunder. They go to Jesus, and, and she asks him, hey, Jesus, can you do me a favor? Make my son sit on the right and the left when, they, when you come and establish your kingdom and you rule it. Let's pick it up in verse 24. After hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus, he called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not to be this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, lording here, it's illustrated. Jesus uses the Gentile leaders. And at the time, it means this heavy-handed leadership. It's a type of leadership that pressures or dominates, or it's even tyrannical or forceful. It has this idea of domineering or ruling over a weaker person. And here in Matthew 20, Jesus tells the disciples, you are not to be like that. Peter, back in our passage, he he forbids this use of arbitrary, arrogant, selfish, or excessive ruling, especially in church leadership. There was a group of leaders in Israel's history who lorded over the sheep. In Ezekiel chapter 34, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it. He describes what lording it over looks like. Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 2. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says Yahweh, woe shepherds of Israel who have been shepherding themselves. Should not the shepherds shepherd the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You sacrifice the fat sheep without shepherding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. And the diseased, you have not healed. And the broken, you have not bound up. And the scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you searched for the lost. But with strength and severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, this is God talking. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth and there was no one to seek or search for them. That's what lording looks like. And Peter now in the first century, nothing really has changed, but he's warning the church and the elders to not lord over the flock. It is unacceptable to dominate the flock. And the apostle John, he dealt with the same thing and he dealt with the same type of leadership. Third John, verse nine and 10, he has this this pastor in the church named Diotrephes and he was lording over the church. He was dominating them. And John confronts him and he describes Diotrephes this way. He loves to be first among them. You see, elders cannot be lording. Elders cannot be like little popes or petty tyrants, but rather in contrast, elders must prove to be examples, Peter says. Examples to the flock. That's what the text says. An elder must be a living example of what it means to walk worthy. See, shepherds would often be out in front of their flock, calling out to them the sheep, calling them to water, calling them to protection. And really, God has graciously implanted the desire to follow godly examples in the hearts of those who are truly saved. And this is no different for me. I'm shepherded. I'm shepherded by my fellow elders. My shepherds are my examples. I want to pray like Bill. I want to serve like Fred. I want to be gentle like Chip. I want to love people like Chris. And I want to love scripture like Dwayne. Why? Because they're following in the footsteps of Christ. He is the one that we are wanting to exemplify. We want to model Christ. Turn with me to another example of what exemplary leadership looks like in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is the portion of scripture where Paul is leaving the Ephesian church, a church that he loved. He loved this church. It's the final time he's talking with them. He poured into them for three years. Listen to how exemplary Paul was. We're going to see in chapter 20, verse 31 through 35. Therefore, be on alert, remembering. Oh, let's drop down. Yeah, let's start there. I'm sorry. 31, therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Dropping down to 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and then to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the, of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than receive. 
See, Paul was exemplary in his action towards the Ephesian church. Look, that's the heart of an elder. And part of an elder's duty is to protect the church. And the goal is to make sure that those in our midst are tended to and given, given an example to follow. And there must be discernment and great care. And, and, and there must be this continual commitment to holiness. This commitment to holiness will be an example to those who are in the shepherd's care. Right? The reality is, if the elders are examples of uncompromising faithfulness to Scripture, then you will be too. If the elders trust God, then you will too. If the elders are loving God and loving people, then you will too. If the elders are peaceful and gentle and loving and prayerful, then the church will emulate that as well. When the church has exemplary leaders, what a blessing that is. And so, what is the level of care for the under-shepherd? Well, it's to not be under compulsion, but willing. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not domineering, but exemplary. Now we can move to number three in your notes this morning. The shepherd's reward. The shepherd's reward. Peter looks to the future here in verse four. And he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And what a magnificent thought that they will share a holy coordination with Jesus Christ. Just as the body is under one head, so all under shepherds report to the chief. Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And again, as you look through scripture and biblically, there is only one flock. And Christ is the only chief shepherd. No one else. He is the one who knows each sheep by name. He is the one who loves the sheep. He is the one who laid his life down for the sheep. And one day he will return for his sheep. Earlier in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Christ is called the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And Peter here, he's telling us that he's coming back and he's going to be bringing with him a reward. This really puts the relationship between the chief shepherd and the under shepherds into a really neat perspective. Right? Each one is under the authority and rule of Jesus. Right? Under shepherds, they cannot lead the church in any way that they'd like. They must give an account to the chief shepherd. Everything that the elder does will be judged on the basis of his faithfulness to the word of God. And this is a weighty, weighty task. But think of how comforting it is for under shepherds. All the heartaches, all the problems, all the trials, all the persecutions that we endure, the chief shepherd endured it fully yet without sin. That is an encouragement and it's a relief to know that we report to him. And so what is the reward that faithful elders will receive? Well, the text says it's a reward of a crown of glory. In the historical context, crowns or wreaths were made out of laurel branches or gold that would tarnish and wouldn't last very long. And of course, we know that this is a metaphor since it's made out of glory, a crown made out of glory. It's, that's what it literally says in 1 Peter. It's a crown consisting of glory. One writer puts it this way. He will receive the crown of glory. I'm sorry. He will give his crown of glory to his under shepherds. And what a time of victory 
vindication and joy of Christ's appearance will bring to the lowly, unnoticed elders who have faithfully shepherded God's flock. Hardworking, selfless shepherds may not have many earthly goods to show for a lifetime of toil, but someday the chief shepherd will come and fully reward his under-shepherds. Their work will no longer go unnoticed, unappreciated, for they will, he will reward them publicly before the hosts of heaven. He will bestow on them heavenly honor and glory. So all elders are to keep their eyes steadfastly fixed upon his appearing, for reward day is coming. Elders in their local church must understand that they're not to operate in this life for the reward and glory of this earth. But instead, they're to labor and shepherd the sheep of God's own flock for the special reward that will come from Christ himself. See, crowns and glory in this life, they will fade. But the one that is bringing this crown of glory, that's going to be the incentive for the elder's holy work. It was customary for Roman generals as they were returning back from war after being victorious they would receive what would, is called the triumph. This is the most public rec, uh, recognition for the homecoming of a commander. As his troops were paraded down the streets and the captives and spoils of war go, went behind them, they would receive all the praise from the people. And while the general wore a laurel crown, identifying him near to divine, he would ride in this four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome, armed with his procession and his army, accompanying the general in his chariot would be a slave, a slave of his own choosing, who was committed to stand right next to him, about a shoulder length apart. And the slave would perform a very specific task. As the roar of the crowd would come and echo, and the glory of the state was given to the general, that chosen slave was to whisper in the ear of that general, memento mori. Remember, you are mortal. You are only human. See, these crowns will fade, but the crown of glory from Christ is unfading like our eternal inheritance that's reserved for the one who's faithful to shepherd the sheep of Christ. Charles Bridges, in his classic work, The Minister of the Shepherd, says to wrap up this point here, he's paraphrasing what our Lord would say to the Apostle Peter. It goes something like this. Simon, feed my lambs. They're not yours. They're mine. But I wish for you to look after them for a little while. Tend my sheep. They are not yours. I do not give them to you because they belong to me. They will always remain. But I ask you to tend them for a season. Feed the sheep. They are not yours. Not one of them shall pass from my possession, but I'm going away for a few days, but I'm going to leave them with you. Guard them, feed them, guide them, be good to them for my sake. Follow me. Remember my gentleness, my watchfulness, my considerations, my patience, my compassion, my readiness to help, my swiftness to heal. Remember my sacrifice and be, be the kind of shepherd to my lambs the way I have been with you. We've looked at a lot this morning. We've seen Peter's charge, the expectation of care, the shepherd's reward. Now, finally, number four, the church's call to humility. 
And so Peter spends the majority of the time on elders in this section, but he ends with a call to humility for everyone in the church. Look at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter starts specifically here with young men. And then a general call to everyone. So if you thought you were off the hook because you're not an elder, think again. This is for, for all of us. Verse 5 is more than just an afterthought on how younger men ought to respect older men. This is more than just an intergenerational relationship building advice. It's because based on the context of this passage and the use of the official title of Uh, of the office of elder in verse one, and then that connecting word of likewise in verse five, it means it's a a continuation of the same topic. And this subjection, right, being subject, it, it suggests more of just one of respect, but authority. And Peter's referring to the office of elder in the church, not just older men in general. Remember, Peter has just exhorted the elders not to lord it over the flock. And now he feels compelled to instruct the younger men to subject themselves to the elders. These younger men are diligently working, right? They're eager for change in the church. And, and, and those younger men are most likely the ones to be knocking heads with the elders, right? Often if eldership is stagnant or if it's ineffective, it's the younger men who are most likely to be discontent. And so what does this practically mean? It means that we should have a bent toward trusting church elders. Our congregation should not be characterized by distrust. And it means that I have a disposition to be supportive in my attitudes and my actions towards the direction of leadership. See, if leadership crafts a vision or sets a goal or moves in a certain direction, I'll go with them. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. See, your leaders are not perfect. I am not perfect. But when you see a godly, caring elder, we must overlook minor faults, which just proves our humanity, and then submit to their care. This looks like trusting and yielding. And by doing so, we then submit to Christ. And this takes humility. Can you see the theme of, of, of humility in this passage? Right? Christ, lowly, humble, meek. His under-shepherds, humble, servant-hearted leaders. And now the congregation clothed with humility. One commentator puts it like this. Smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And Peter ends this section with the reason for the call to humility. Look at the text. For God is opposed to the proud, yet gives grace to the humble. Church, God opposes the proud because pride is a sin and it's a hindrance to seeking him. Those who insist on elevating themselves or refuse to trust God as sovereign and good or trustworthy will find themselves directly opposed to God. Pride is anti-God. 
Pride is so deceptive that it can creep into our lives even as believers. Pride can lead to fighting and strife with one another. Pride negatively affects our relationships because it inflates our view of ourselves and deflates our view of God. Essentially, pride is self-worship. Pride, Thomas Watson, the Puritan says, pride seeks to un-God God. It's arrogant. Prideful people run after self-recognition and self-exaltation. And so how do you know if you have pride in your life? I'll give you 15 quick manifestations of pride in your life that you, I encourage you to consider this afternoon. Ask yourself, are any of these true of you? Number one, do you complain or pass judgment on God? This is pride. You do not know better than God. Number two, do you have a lack of gratitude in general? See, being ungrateful is pride. Proud people tend to think they deserve what they have and are discontent and critical when they don't. Number three, do you have anger? Anger is is pride. Whether you have outbursts of anger or you withdraw or pout, or one of my favorite code words for anger, just frustrated, anger is pride. Number four, do you see yourself better than others? This means that you look down on people and have little tolerance for people who have differences. This is pride, and it is, is, is a sin. Number five, do you have an inflated view of your own giftings or abilities? 1 Corinthians 12 says, what do you have that God didn't give to you? Meaning, you did nothing on your own. And so high view of self is pride. Number six, contrasting that, do you focus on your lack of ability or lack of gifting? Are you lost in a woe is me attitude and do you wallow in self-pity? That worm mentality is pride. It's just presenting itself as humility. Number seven, are you a perfectionist? Do you want it perfect because you want the recognition? This is pride. Eight, do you talk too much? Proud people talk often because they think what they have to say is more important than whatever anyone else has to say. This is pride. Number nine, do you talk too much about yourself? Do you brag or do you boast? This is pride. Ten, do you seek independence or control? Do you always have to be your own boss just because someone else is going to mess it up? It's pride. Number 11, are you consumed with what other people think? Are you seeking the approval of others as a man pleaser? This is pride. 12, do you not take constructive criticism, criticism well? And on the other side of the coin, are you overcritical? If you cannot bear to hear where you might be able to improve, you're prideful. And if you over-criticize, you're prideful. 13, are you teachable? Many individuals just know it all. They think they are superior. They can't seem to learn anything from anyone. And they respect no one. This is pride. 14, are you sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading? If you're unkind or belittle people... It's a manifestation of pride in your life. 15, is there a lack of service in your life? Proud people do not serve because they are not thinking about others or they want to be coaxed into serving because they think they'll get some recognition out of it. This is pride. And there's probably another hundred manifestations of pride that you can think about how it can manifest in your life. 
And if it's that easy for pride to creep into your life and God is 100% opposed to pride, we should be doing everything we can to rid ourselves of pride. See, the first step to humility is confession and repentance. Then we need to ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Next, we must have a proper view of ourselves in relation to God. Meaning, we are creatures. We're small. We're finite. We're dependent. We're limited. We're prone to sin. And we'll soon die and face judgment. But we are God's children, created, loved, redeemed by God's grace alone, not anything that we could have done on our own behalf. It is God who uniquely gifts us with the abilities, resources, and advantages which are all to be used for God's glory. Paul tells the Corinthians that there weren't many wise, weren't many noble, not many rich in this present age, and yet God chose to place the gospel treasure into jars of clay. And so no flesh may boast before God, so just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. This is how God wants it to be. So to review, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, we saw Peter's charge to shepherd the flock of God. Number two, we saw the expectation of care, how elders are ought to shepherd the flock. Number three, the shepherd's eternal reward. And finally, the church's call to humility. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come before you. I mean, I pray that the impact of this section of 1 Peter would have a residing effect upon our souls, not just for those who aspire towards eldership, but for all of us to understand what it means to shepherd in the church of God. Pastors and elders are, are so important to your plan. And we ask that you would help this passage develop our understanding of what an elder is to be. Help it guide our hearts and how we think of our own pastors and our own elders among us. Help us to understand the amount of joy and love that we should grant to them and help them to help us. Fathers, we see dark days coming where persecution would rise. Keep us steadfast and immovable, standing firm upon the hope that you provide. Father, give the elders wisdom and protect them as they lead. Give the young men grace as they obey you in being submissive. And we pray for each one of us to evaluate where there might be pride in our lives. Help us rid our hearts of the pride that hides in the corners of our hearts. For some of us, it's that 800-pound gorilla in the room. For others, it's our, the pride in our hearts or, or, is a subtle vice that sneaks around in our hearts. Father, forgive us when we fall short. Help us to be a church marked by humility. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's stand together.